Hey, listeners, join me for Excel 2021 presented by Carson Group in Las Vegas from October 12th to 14th, 2021. Head on over to www.excelconference.com and email ecox at carsongroup.com for more information. See you there. Hi, this is Tina Powell, host of In The Suite, where I sit down with top women leaders and some of the biggest names in the financial services and the wealth management industry. Together, we'll discover some of their best secrets and top strategies to grow great business, build a strong brand, and lead teams in the 21st century. I hope you'll enjoy hearing their amazing personal stories of triumph, trepidation, and transformation in hopes of becoming better leaders ourselves. The time for you to lead is now, and you're in the suite. Meet Lee DiLorenzo, co-founder of United Asset Strategies and United Financial Group in Garden City, New York. The name Lee DiLorenzo is synonymous with top female advisors in the wealth management industry. Lee is a 2021 Forbes top New York wealth advisor and Barron's Hall of Fame financial advisor. Having started her career in financial services, assisting her father's insurance and investment planning business, Lee knew she had found her calling and her father knew that she was the future. In 1992, Lee co-found and transformed the company into United Asset Strategies, an independent registered investment advisory firm presently managing over 1,000 clients, 30 employees, and $1.4 billion of assets. Today's podcast kicks off with Lee making a massive announcement. She talks about how and why she sold 80% of her family-run business to two very special talented employee partners, one of them being her own nephew, Matt DiLorenzo, now Chief Investment Officer, and the other being Michael Ricciardi, now President. Lee, like many members of her team, has outstanding credentials while being fiercely committed to lifelong learning. She's a certified financial planner, a certified private wealth advisor, and an accredited investment fiduciary. She's also a member of the Investment and Wealth Institute and the Financial Planning Association. Based upon Lee's leadership skills and commitment, it is no surprise that she has been ranked and included annually as one of America's top 100 women financial advisors by Barron's for 10 consecutive years. In addition to being inducted into Barron's advisor Hall of Fame. She's also been a top 50 advisor on Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors in New York and named Forbes Top Women Wealth Advisors 2021. Wow. Lee has also contributed to articles and interviews in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, The Financial Times, Fox Business News, Bloomberg Radio, Barron's, and more. And one of the many gifts you'll discover about Lee DiLorenzo in this episode is her ability to craft a succession plan as both a predecessor 40 years ago and as a successor 40 years later. Lee is fine-tuning the family business for a new era and generation while managing to keep the same team glued for years. When asked how she did it, part of it was pure blessing, lifelong learning, loving and caring in the suite. Wow, Lee DiLorenzo, take a seat in the suite. You know, the last time I saw you 
was right before the pandemic at TD Ameritrade at the Link Conference in 2020. Boy, were we so, so lucky for that. And then there's been another change on top of that, Lee, with United Asset Strategies. So I thought that we could kind of kick things off right there. Well, thank you for having me in the suite. I, it's an honor. You've had some incredible talent, wonderful people. Congratulations on the show's success and, and your growth, too. Um, you deserved every bit of it. And you mentioned meeting at TD Ameritrade. You know, gosh, whatever. It seemed like a lifetime ago. Yeah. But your energy is um, infectious, and that's what I love about you. So I'd like to just thank you for that. A lot has changed. And at United Asset Strategies, come the end of the uh, last year in December, I sold 80% of the company to two very special, talented employees, key people that have been with me, I don't know, 12 years at the time, to supplement already some employee ownership that we had in place. That is such a great conversation. And I know that there are a lot of advisors right now listening and they are struggling with succession. Not that you're leaving the business because you're very much there. You're a part of it. However, I've been so fascinated. The questions that you asked the TD leadership at the time, Tom Nally, they were always the questions that were, some of them were in my head and I would sit there and I'd go, wow, that was such a great question to ask. So I've admired your career from afar and I wanted to really get into some of that succession strategies because there are a couple ways to angle it. We hear a lot about M&A succession. You are the first advisor that I've spoken to in a long time that have actually engineered it from the inside. And I've watched your team. You have this like core group, this core team that you've kept like glued together for the last 12 years. I'm so fascinated by that. I really would love to learn some of those strategies, but let's talk a little bit about the succession because it wasn't something that just happened overnight. And to your point, you had already managed an an ESOP internally and was always going in that direction. Why was that appropriate for you? So in order to answer that question, you actually have to take it back a little bit further to see what was thought about, tried, passed over, or examined So back in the early, early days, my partner, father, and I were doing succession planning consulting, or he was, and I was observing so I could see what would happen and what would go wrong in many businesses. And there were more failures than successes. When it came time for my father and I to do a buyout, I had been gifted shares in lieu of compensation up to 50%, but then we did a bona fide buyout with an appraisal and a, and a, and a node and money down on 50%. So I, I bought him out that final half in cash and notes. When the client looked at me in the face and said, well, what if something happens to you? That's how long ago it started. And to be honest, just like people that might be listening today, they're in a position where there is no good answer. And I found that to address what happens in my death was the easier part. And what would happen if I continued to live uh, was a little bit more difficult. So the idea of merging with another firm, buying talent, this was my preferred, which is that if there were two partners and one was leaving and one was staying, that would be nirvana so that you could get the goodwill stayed. Maybe the person leaving was really needed to leave, et cetera. 
And I had had experience in doing that kind of buyout in a pension administration company. Everyone I tried, it just didn't feel right at the end. So then I moved towards possibly merging with a a firm of equals or merging with a firm of different strengths. And, And I have to tell you that I was like the bride that got to the altar and ran away. It just, at the end, it was, I couldn't put my finger on it. But the word now is thrown around so often, which is culture. Just the culture wasn't right. So I started to think about what is my culture. Then I decided, well, maybe I could sell. Or actually, there were people approaching me. And I wasted a lot of time because of my ego going down the path, which I knew wasn't going to work. A, a, a regional bank, actually, we got right to the offer. And it was, it was far inferior to what I could do profit-wise in just three years' time. So that was a no-brainer. And We even got to the point we got an offer from a privately held Wall Street firm with the finest name. I can't say it. I still have a, you know, a a do not repeat, have you? So here I was year after year trying and still not having an answer. Well, what happens if I live and I, you know, I don't, I don't die. And I looked around at this incredible team that was being built or had been built, um, had been built. I want to say that it just started with the, the 12 year ago. And I said, this is the future. This is the future for United Asset Strategies. The same way my dad knew it about me, I knew it about these people. They were, we are cold. Um, our logo is gold and green. And I say, you know, they bleed green. And I just said, you know what? Let's just continue to build out an incredible team and replace all of my strengths. Not that I'm the smartest person in the room on every single thing, but I knew where my strengths were. And I knew I needed to replace each piece of me for this effort to work. I think that's so fascinating. One of the the big takeaways from what you just said there was the ability to walk down the altar at the nth hour to say no. How And we need to get to that point, though, because all of this is new. While there might be some sort of a playbook that exists, every deal is different. So almost by definition, you have to walk down the altar to understand all of the little nuances. You don't get to the granular level of detail until you get down to the altar. You've got your dress, you've got your hair, you got your makeup, the priest, <laughs> you know, the priest is there. And I think that you, you, you give us permission. We need permission in order to, especially when it comes to our business, this is a huge, huge decision. Mm-hmm. Why not take it to that level to get to that clarity. Once you get there, you have amazing clarity. There's a piece of me that felt, oh, I failed at the end. Look at all that time I wasted because the amount of details for you to get to the place where someone's making an offer to purchase you in both of the last two bona fide offers, it's rent. It's time sucking vortex of your mind and of your actual hours. And the idea of someone who gets married when they had the flutters in their stomach anyway versus no, this is truly wrong. You don't really know until time passes and you find out what the real plan was. Going down that altar, you might think, well, I want to get married for X reasons. And then you find out later, oh, it was for Y reasons. So I think when my focus changed from me, what do I get out of this transition to? What do my clients get out of this? Mm-hmm. It was, oh, perpetuity, uninterrupted perpetuity. And that's when it just became clear. There's no other way to go. United Assets stays in-house. So That is amazing. And then here you have this core group of people. 
you started the business in, in 2007, correct, right? 2007, well, the no, United Asset Strategy part, right? That was actually formed in 1992, okay. but it didn't really take off until 2007, eight. Okay, right. And I just want to say there's been incredible growth from 2007. You were about 200 million under AUM. And mm-hmm. now you're at like 1.3 billion. Four. We hit four. 1.4. Congratulations. <laughs> Woo! <Woo-hoo-hoo. laughs> and not only that, we've gone through pandemic, add recession in there, volatility change of political administrations, and you've got kept this core group with you the whole entire time. Mm-hmm. That to me deserves, that is success. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Good for you, Lee. Thank you. You had mentioned your dad, and I know that your dad has been your hero, and he is the reason that you were in the business to begin with. Can you walk us back? When did you start working with your dad? Well, I was 19, and I joined him as his assistant. Um, I, we called him secretaries at the time, and I was had no problem being his assistant. He um, was selling life insurance at a firm that specialized in estate planning. And back in the day, that made him a little bit different than the kitchen table salesman. And he just gravitated to the business owner. And it just, it, it, the two of us just took off. So if he was here, I mean, he's alive, he's 91. I'm going to see him in two days. Yeah. God bless you, Mr. DiLorenzo, wherever you are. (laughs) He always says, make sure you mention me. If you ever get interviewed, I said, dad, I try to work in the first five minutes. (laughs) Exactly. What's his, what's his first name? Mike, 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 this episode is for you. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much. You've done an amazing job with your daughter, but go ahead. So trying to gauge this conversation to other advisors as well. So you had the senior and the junior. It didn't really matter that we were related. He and his wife, my mom, moved from New York to the Virgin Islands for a life change. Mm. And when he left, I don't think he was even aware of what was going to happen to him. But he didn't want to have anything to do with running that business at all. Um, Although I was the infrastructure but he didn't even want to service New York because he wanted to be in the Virgin Islands. So for him, he just would bring in new business from St. Croix and the rest. I don't even know that he knew that he wasn't paying attention to it. And and in all due respect to him, he did the best he could, but he was just slowing down. So from and just from age 60, when he moved to, I, I guess, I, I don't remember how many years later, but at least five before the buyout took place, um, it, he had to figure out what he what he wanted. And I think my mom was urging him too, which is, what are you going to be one of those persons that work yourself to death, then you retire and you die? She was quite verbal about it. So now there's another DiLorenzo. I love this like generational, there's a main theme to this episode. And look, I'm just, I'm just always fascinated to talk to you. And then mm-hmm. these kind of themes emerge. So there was, there was, there's Mike DiLorenzo, there's Lee DiLorenzo, and now there's Matt DiLorenzo. This is true. This is true. So Matt is my nephew, my brother's son. And I I just want to take a moment, which is he's one of the two individuals that bought the majority of shares in December and is now the chief investment officer of the company, although he was anyway without the title and the secretary of the corporation. 
And as I mentioned, he's my nephew. And it was actually my father who said, go get that boy. What are you waiting for? Um, because I really didn't see the talents the way my father did. And it was Thanksgiving and I buddied up to him and started to talk to him in a way that was more interviewing to see what the nature of his soul was. I already knew his work ethic because he was a world-class wrestler, wrestling for an Ivy, an All-American, and that type of dedication and commitment to self and team was evident. But then to just see what his interests were and how flexible he was was something, you know, during the Thanksgiving table, and then later I asked him, you know, would you like to come work for us? And I, we hired him away from Nomura Security. So I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but that's where he was at. That's amazing. I know exactly the type of attributes that you're talking about with wrestling. My son also, too, was a wrestler. He was captain of the varsity team in senior year. And what was interesting is he just started wrestling when he was a freshman. There is no sport that has this dedication, this self-discipline boy and then it's just you. It's just you and your opponent out and out for everyone to see. But also one of the things I, I, I think that this also too, Lee, could be potentially a, a big takeaway from this episode. And that is that how many, how many advisors and even people in different types of roles within an advisory firm have some relative that has that work ethic and, and exudes those types of qualities. You remind us to take a look. Sometimes the answer is right in front of us, right, right in front of us. So now talk to us a little bit about retention. It's been this, this, this core group now during all these periods of change. How did you create a wrestling team inside United Assets? <laughs> well, a lot of it was just pure blessing, but I guess it's through the leadership style. And on one hand, I consider myself an able delegator where I want people to be accountable for their own desk, treat yourself like the CEO of your job. And at different points along the way that I've been in business now 40 years. So through the decades, you'd be able to identify where there was weakness. And let's just say it was an accountability. And I hired an outside consultant to address accountability. And then later on, perhaps it was in organizational skills where somebody just needed to grow in the role and be able to do more in an hour than they used to do in an hour. And you knew they wanted to, but they couldn't. So then we would bring in an outsider to address their skills, uh, you know, to improve those skills. The idea of lifelong learning, well, I, I could spend too much time on that, but the idea of my other people watching the company support the growth of their career, I think was was important. So we pay everybody well. We try to make their careers grow at our expense, knowing that it would benefit everybody at the end. All boats rise together when that tide rises. And this idea of, and I think that I, I didn't realize it was female or maternal because men can be maternal also, but I mother these people. I love them. I sign their birthday cards. Lovely. I notice I'm the only person. I love these people. And I think they know I love them. I care about them so much. So thank you for putting that out there with the love part too, because I, I feel the same way about my team and you hit upon a really important point, and that is that lifelong learning, but giving people, get, making an organization actually 
like a university in some ways when it needs to be morphed into that, that it's okay for this lifelong learning. Uh, one of the ideas that, that we've been experimenting with, and it's so far, knock on wood, it's, it's working, is a, a quarterly learning day. The, it's at the company's expense. Go out and learn something and then come back and, and teach it. How did you manifest lifelong learning within United Asset Strategies? Well, I think that in the uh, retention discussion we were having just a moment ago, one of the problems we realized we wanted to address was the job review. We didn't know what we were doing when we were growing the business from two people to six people to 10 people to 20. You know, there's no rule book when you're growing organically like that. And when we addressed the job description, not the job description, the job review, the annual review, the quarterly review, we tried to focus on, and the individual that helped me grow this portion of the company is no longer with us. So just a shout out to Rodney Chi, who really was instrumental in so many career development things that we did, was to focus on well, what's important. It was performance in the role, growth in the role, and adherence to company culture. And in that growth in the role, That might mean an Excel program for somebody, but it might mean a CFA class for somebody else. And growth in the role, we would put it them. One person was finishing their account degree, even though they're more on the the, um, computer side of things. So there was suggestions made by me or a manager, but mostly it was left up to the individual. We didn't really care if there was a direct correlation to the growth in themselves as long as it was educational, we weren't say, like letting them go to yoga class, you know, even though that's very important too. So that, that growth in the role became more formal and that's even evolved since then for a chunk of employees, but we did that. So I think that that helped with retention and it certainly helped with lifelong learning and lifelong learning for me, I think psychologically it has to do with the fact that I didn't go to college but I realized, especially in this industry, because we manage money, and I was the primary portfolio manager and strategist for a very long time before we started to grow the company, is what you learn in college is not, you, you have to stay fresh. You, you have to learn what's, what's bobbing and weaving and quantitative analysis and qualitative analysis. You can read it in a book, but until you get your clock clunked on, that's how you really learn. And then you can go back and see the mistakes made in the past. So you have to keep learning. So let's talk about your own lifelong learning, which I I think that we can distill a message. However, it's really our actions as leaders. What we say probably accounts for this much. What we do is, is the bigger picture. You are a certified financial planner, and I've said it on this podcast numerous times, ladies and gentlemen, you, you, you all have heard it. This is a major, major league exam. This is a very hard, hard nut to crack. Financial planners and advisors that have the certified financial that have the CFP have undergone rigorous rigorous academic work, as well as there's the practitioner part as well. So it's an incredible designation. The second is that you're a certified private wealth advisor, a CPWA. You are an an accredited investment fiduciary. You have a license for life and health insurance. You, You took learning to a whole entire level. The idea of continuing the Uh, accreditations, I just feel at some point, 
like, what's the difference between the CFP and the CPWA? For me, I wanted to get to executive compensation planning mm-hmm. and estate planning at a deeper level. So that's why I went for the CPWA. There's a bit of overlap, but that was the area that I wanted to get to. And I figured, what the heck? And I did that in 2013 purposely because I hadn't really gotten a designation that would take me that deep. And I thought that it was necessary to refresh on the income tax level, which was AMT tax and all of that. We just dug in all over again, just like CFP, which I got in my when I was in my 20s. And now here I was, I think at the time in my 50s, starting that particular designation. And then the AIF, the Accredited Investment Fiduciary, that was because a a portion of United Asset Strategies money under management comes from qualified planning, ERISA plans, and the, the roadmap that the AIF puts out there was just very important. So when you're presenting to different trust committees, et cetera, investment committees that, that they, I already am a fiduciary, but now I'm accredited. So I thought that that would help. But behind the scenes, there's some one-off programs that are absolutely incredible, offered by Wharton and Columbia and Harvard, putting you in a, a graduate student level courses. And the last one that I took, and it's not an, you don't get accredited for it, was in connection with the CFP board. So that's why I bring it up, because you brought up the certified financial planning designation. The, the lifelong learning through the CFP doesn't end. And that last class was on behavioral finance. I think I was in the inaugural class. I just grabbed it. And it was incredible. It just, it took confirmation bias, like the reasons of behavioral, why they might panic or something. And it just took it to a whole new level, uh, created brand new data questions for me to work with. And in a new, exciting way, it invigorated me, you know, to be one-on-one with clients again. It was fun. Hey listeners, you can now text me at 201-581-3983 to join our mobile text-based community in the suite. After you do that, I'll be lifting you up, inspiring you, and supercharging your life with awesome quotes, resources, videos, and tips we learn from our great guests. It couldn't be any easier. Just text in the suite to 201-581-3983. And as a special bonus for everyone that joins our text-based community and writes us a five-star review, I will send you a sweet surprise. We've got two groups of people listening. Those are who are already in the financial advisory profession. And then women who benefit from looking to expand their leadership, their development, and their culture. What would then your your advice be to anyone that's listening that's considering making the move to use a financial advisor, or maybe they have a financial advisor already, are these certifications, how much of these certifications and these ongoing educations, how do they start to bring that bridge that discussion? Should it be, is it really important? Should you only do business with an advisor that has these types of specialized credentials? Oh, I don't like, no, know the CFP board's going to love the answer to this one. So the answer is it helps because it helps you as a person realize what you love to do and what you don't want to touch. So I, I think that going through that and getting a general knowledge is, is critical if you're going to be a financial plan. But there's so many ones to our business as RIA. I have research analysts. I have portfolio managers. Are they really going to benefit by having a CFP? Well, they might help understand the end client a whole lot more. But I just want to address that because in all fairness, when the industry started to say commission selling is bad and investment advice is good, I, I took resentment to that because at the time, um, and this was 10 plus years ago, there were incredible 
financial planners that might not have had their CFP and were excellent money managers. They just didn't have the designations. It didn't mean they were bad or greedy. And yes, there are tons of them that are bad and greedy. And on the RIA side, there's a bunch that are lazy and don't study their craft and and just charge and collect fees, wait for the phone to ring instead of make things happen. So I, I believe that you should always grow in your role in any way possible. And the CFP having it might just be because you were smart. It's what you practice that's important. Yeah. And you've never operated in isolation when you're managing a client. A prospective client is evaluating an entire firm. You're not only looking at the core competency of your advisor, but understanding most of them, if you've never worked, if you're, again, if you're listening to this podcast, there's this ensemble approach to managing the client, being able to talk deeply about planning investments and other business issues that are relevant to that client, other estate issues. So, it's an important point. I think it's a, a great segue also too for for me to ask you you are one of the top females in the wealth management industry and you have had now 10 years. You were just named to Forbes Top Women Wealth Advisors 2021. We have a, a dazzling uh, site to direct people to. I will, we'll, we'll put all these things in the show notes. You have been ranked as America's Top 100 Women Financial Advisors by Barron's for 10, 10, 10 consecutive years. You are a Top 50 Advisor on Forbes Best in State Wealth Advisors in New York. In 2019, you were inducted into the Barron's Hall of Fame. You've contributed to the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, Financial Times. How have you managed your career to be on all of these lists? What are you doing that perhaps other people can kind of take and add a page to their own playbook? First off, yeah. humility, because I didn't do it alone. That first year I showed up, I'm going to get emotional right now. That first year I got on the list, I was like crying. I couldn't believe it because like maybe some of the listeners, I was like, dang, I want to be on that list. <laughs> and honestly, I want to be on the independent RIA list before I wanted to be on the women's list because it's just, you've got a firm. It's not female, male to me. But let me tell you, when, when I was put on that list that first time, however many years ago, it was such a team joy, a team celebration. And I don't want to ever take that for granted. And over the years, I mean, I'm not sure the secret sauce that Barron's looks at and Forbes looks at specifically to say that you're going to be a top advisor, but they do look at assets under management growth. But thankfully, they also look at the revenue growth because you could have a firm that's lowballing their fees with huge AUM, but if the revenue is not growing at, a, at an impressive, and they're looking for double digit, believe me, they're not looking for single digit growth that you would be able to separate one firm or one advisor from another. And the other is, I know that they're asking about our turnover rate, how many clients leave each year as a percentage, and they're not supposed to put it out. But I, I think anything over 1%, for a period of time would, would kind of not be the cream of the crop. So I, I think with kudos to both TD Ameritrade and Schwab for having certain programs early on that focused on why do clients leave, that also helped besides the great client experience, et cetera, but it's to look at honestly, why did a client leave? And that you could see if it's something that you can address and then you get to it. Yeah, TD Ameritrade always had amazing support on the practice management side too. I was so impressed that there would be speakers and there would be different knowledge bases. 
Vanessa Oligino, John Ruda, Pete Dorsey, Skip Schweiss. I mean, just amazing amounts of knowledge and how they they took that knowledge and made sure that the financial advice community was really had close ears as, and what was on top. I learned so much from being on that panel. I'm so sad. Yeah, TD, TD Ameritrade in particular, some of the firms, they'll say, well, I'm going to be your, we'll be partners. Um, but yeah. TD Ameritrade, once I got over the skepticism, they really have been an incredible partner to United Asset Strategies. And the team, some of them are still there. Some of them obviously had to move on. I, I mean, we do a shout out to uh, Mr. Tom Bradley. I'm very pleased that he, he wound up at Schwab, where a bunch of our assets are going to transfer to. And he's a, a gentleman that's willing to pick up the phone when, when you call him. And yeah. that's the culture that TD Ameritrade created probably under him. They maintained it. And hopefully Schwab can adopt the same thing. Yeah. I mean, even Kate Healy, who's no longer there, will pick up any phone. We had her in the suite. Still, I follow everything that she's saying on on Twitter, on LinkedIn. It's who they were as people. So I think every business, no matter what type of business that you're in, you need some sort of support network around you. You need some sort of ongoing learning, practice management. I'm studying right now. I'm in a small cohort of people right now through Mastermind. And I'm learning and I'm being mentored and I'm being coached and all of those things. So it's a great lesson. And I think that it adds to the value of the business and keeping everybody together for that culture. So you spoke a little bit about that culture early on. Was there anything else that that you wanted to mention about that culture? Any important takeaways that you did something different? In fact, it was years and years ago when I was attending the Schwab type meetings that they were talking about branding and knowing your mission statement. And I roll my eyes, you know, I, you know, because I, you know, it's so many, it's so difficult to love every aspect of running a business. And marketing was the weakest, actually. It was just referral, referral, and and not the big picture. And they had me thinking about a mission statement, and it took me years to actually get one that I loved and embraced. And it came to me in church, and I was thinking about, I think it was the stewardship period, and it what is stewardship? And I actually looked it up, and it was deep caring of something and nurturing and action behind it. And I said, well, obviously, I want to be a steward to my clients, but I want to be a steward to the employees as well. But it's not me to them. It's it's every, the whole circle. So the mission statement about being a steward to our clients and to each other became a mantra. And I'd like to believe that the new leaders of United Asset Strategies, sometimes you have a hire and it doesn't quite fit because they they might not have the skill set or the intelligence. But if they don't have the heart that that, that person would you know have to move on the same way if they didn't have the right skill set, if they don't have the right heart, they don't really last at United. So. <laughs> Such a beautiful way of just articulating that. And I see evidence all around uh, on your website. You pay homage to where you came from. And I see you also too. I see you using channels like YouTube and webinars. And so you're making sure that that content video is getting out there. Yes, it's still important that delivery mechanism of PDFs and emails and all of that. That's still way important. But I see you also too through throughout the years being able to embrace other forms of communication and layer that into just your your entire business. 
Yeah, I'm, people like you helped me get over my fear of making a video and putting it out there. So our product still has a lot of improvement to go. Got better equipment might help, better lighting. But the idea of staying genuine to yourself, which is, I know that when I had it on the to-do list, United Acid has to start putting out video content. I just couldn't do it. But when it started to evolve naturally and I would do the part that I was comfortable with and avoid the part I wasn't comfortable with, you can't, well, to me, my firm, you have to do what you're good at and do what you like. So if you're not, then bring in someone else to cover the uh, spots that need assistance or, or their passion can shine through. Yeah, I give you so much credit also, too, that anything that you've done, you've involved the team. It's never been just, it's never been just Lee. And I think that's- Well, it was, it was. When I was in my 30s and 40s, my ego was out of control. I was out of control. I thought I was responsible for everything good. And then you start to calm down. I was like Madonna when she turned 40. I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't do this by myself. And then finally, I think I hit 50 and I, I became a collaborator. So now I'm 60 and I'm a true collaborator. I might not do everything that's suggested, but I absolutely don't make a, a major decision without talking with people, not always in the business, certainly outsiders. But yeah, I was out of control in my 30s, 20s and 30s. Oh, my gosh. People would look at me and run away. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, but I can also relate to what you're, what you're talking about too. And so I'm over 50 and I, I had just a come to Jesus moment, turning 50 and entering that decade. And you hmm. start to really think about legacy and what you want to be known for and what people would say and how you want to make an impact. You become so more outwardly focused with age. Aging is a hard thing to do because you are removing so much of that ego and going into yourself and then discovering that there are some points or some parts that need work on. And, and what do we do? We work on it. Being that the industry also too has evolved and it is exciting to see more young people in the industry. I would say now that especially on the marketing, the back office, business development, you've got exciting technology. It is an exciting field to work because again, everything revolves around money. Everyone listening to this podcast right now needs to know something about their money. Cecile Munoz just talked about that. And I think that we would both agree. And marketers, especially, there's so much opportunity. What would be your advice for anyone new entering the industry right now, just starting out? To take the time to understand the different segments of being in the financial industry. When I was younger, it was investment banking and the stockbroker, right? And then the stockbroker was supposed to be the planner. That's what a young person might think of then. Now, I'm not quite sure what the pulse of a young person defines the financial industry as. And I had the opportunity to drive a 15-year-old just about to turn 16 home from school the other day because of this, helping out her mom. And she said that, you know, when I was talking to her about college and she thinks she wants to go finance and I said, well, you know, what does that mean to you? She's going to make money. <laughs> and and um, so if that's what it means to her, OK, that's a start. And that's important. But when you think about it, which is all right, if you want to make money, what's your skill set? So we talked a little bit about that, which is client facing role. 
about her comfortability of speaking with people. And we took a financial planner job and put it into two pieces, the behind the scenes, critical data entry, massage, understanding, there's a shortfall, what might you come do, you know, help the data questions versus client facing, taking the data. And she was, oh, I can get right out there and talk to people. So I said, so that's the type of question you need to ask yourself in any industry, young lady, that you wind up in to just take it through. And then it comes back to your personal passions and skills. So if it's if it's math and you maybe you want to be on the quantitative side and 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 or qualitative side and reading balance sheets and and looking for for opportunities and and stay on the investment management side and stay away from the clients. So yeah, that's really good to understand where you're feeling most great at both the soft skills and the, and the hard skills, but certainly if you have the soft skills, there's a place for that as well as the real hard quant job skills here. And I think one of the things that's very interesting right now is how even young people can reach out to financial advisors such as yourself, Lee, and even on LinkedIn or in Twitter and ask a question. And now you can get a little bit of an understanding, talk to people in those roles. If you have a family member, if you yourself are considering, don't be afraid to just reach out cold to a person that you've never spoken to in your life. They will, especially financial advisors, they are so, I'd say, people-oriented. Their business is people. It is a people business before it's a numbers business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the amount of time that I'm spending right now mentoring others is much less than it was before. So I apologize. I don't have any great pearly words of, of wisdom in that regard. But the different individuals that come to us as interns, uh, one of them came from a college that had an underdegree program in financial planning. And we know now that more and more colleges are embracing master's programs in financial planning. And one that one particular woman from a local Long Island college is now a financial planner at the firm. And she doesn't love client facing, but she's superb. Mm. And other interns, um, it's very interesting because there's one intern, her, the dad works for us and the dad wants him to go in this angle, but I've got him working on projects and he wants to stay to see the client interaction. So who knows what will happen? And I just want to spend a minute on generations. So the other partner of the firm, the majority is Michael Riccardi and his son, Guy Michael, his name is Guy. His name is Michael also, but we call him Guy so that we don't trip up. Um, He's with the firm over 10 years. He's a certified financial planner, and he loves the whole planning aspect of it. Whereas some of the the idea of knowing your asset managers from your investment managers versus your financial planners, they're all different. And and I, I think that we should own our title, which is what are you? So right now, true and true, I'm a business owner first. That's what I am first. I'm a planner second and I'm investment manager third. So they're all distinctly different opportunities in the marketplace for young people and uh, a lot of opportunities for us to go down the right road, the wrong road, turn around and and come back in another area and and, and spend time where you're passionate. Mm. Super, super advice. See, I think you did have pearls of wisdom just there right now, Lee. The other thing I want to say is I've seen biology majors. I've seen people at very senior level careers and they were a bio major or something. So also too, don't worry what your major is right now. If you picked, if you pick something else and you have the aptitude and the willingness to come into financial services, it's an open door and companies like United Asset Strategies, just there's some great companies start calling people up and, and talking to them. 
How do you see the industry changing in the next five years? And how do you see your own role changing in the next five years? Or does it change? The industry changes constantly. And I haven't been a great prognosticator of where it's going. But what I can share is that you need to admit it's going to change and be willing to look at that change and see if you want to be part of it. So certain parts of the industry, for instance, fee compression was a big deal about 10 years ago. And I think that the brokerage companies, the discount brokers were primarily responsible for the rest of us charging less. And I, and I unfortunately, and I say unfortunately, came down to a level of fees that I never should have, and I will never do it again. So if there's more fee compression in the future, and at least I'm in charge at United Asset Strategies, which I'm not anymore, I'm not the president, there, I would not continue to lower the fee because it, it, it just minimizes what we do. We are not a commodity. Maybe a, a, a quantitative model that's going off numbers, that is um, a commodity. That can have fee compression, but the rest can't. So wherever the trends go, we need to stay flexible. We need to not fight them. And we need to see whether we embrace them. Robo, that was a perfect example. I got a robo offering. I tried to embrace it. I did mailings. I, I put out tchotchkes. Because I figured that's just that's a management I can offer lower. I could hit a segment of the industry I'm not. It didn't take off, but I, I embraced it. Crypto, the same thing. Like wherever the industry is going, stay open to it. I wrote a paper in 2012 on crypto. I traded wow. it. I was so mad I had to sell my crypto to, in, in my divorce. But, you know, so things change and you yeah. need to change with them. Or look at them and say, no, that change I'm not going to embrace. I'm going to keep doing it my way. Mm. So where do I think the industry is going? I don't, I'm not sure. The idea that you should specialize or you should be a generalist. We've always stayed generalists, but I see the value in marketing as if you are a specialist to a specific group of people with our great general knowledge. So that's something where I had to throw out perhaps the the flavor of the month was be a specialist. I rejected that. I didn't like that. But to be a generalist to a specific area, there's great value to that. So be flexible. I don't know where the industry's going. Just be open-minded. Yeah, that's great. I think the big takeaway there was that it is changing. Embrace those changes. Dabble in the different themes, take an approach one way or another, either you're going to brace it and then start to dabble in things, understanding that some things are going to work, some things aren't, you're going to change your mind. But as a business owner, you don't just stand there. Doing nothing is the easy thing. I know that a lot of people listening right now are going to want to have a, a, a great conversation with you and reach out to you. What's the best way to get in touch with you? You could just have my email address is leed at unitedasset.com. That would be fine. Okay. That's if you forget that, info at unitedasset.com and they'll find me. And then we're asking for a book recommendation this year. Is there anything that has your, your eye right now from a reading perspective, whether old or new? Let's see. On the financial side or the personal side? It could be. It could be either, actually. I'm fascinated by both answers. Okay. So I I would think that the last financial-oriented book came out of that Wharton CFP program, and it was simply called Client Psychology. I think it was written by Wiley. So Client Psychology written by Wiley, and because it took it into... What, what is our relationship with money? And that, that's my new sentence, which is let's explore your relationship with money. And then they gave us some tool sets and, and uh, you could take it from there. 
And then on the personal side, not that it's a new book, but the four agreements had just been recommended to me because I was just been disappointed in my performance, not my performance, my um, my outbreak. I had an outbreak with an individual and it was ugly and it was quick, but it still made me feel yucky. And I was talking to someone about it and they recommended the book. It's a quick read, the four agreements. And the first one is be impeccable with your word. And if I was being impeccable with my word, I wouldn't have gone that way. And it also helps you to think about your word is in your head. So being impeccable with your word is how you think about yourself and talk about yourself is also part of it. And there's three other agreements. I have them all memorized, but that's a quick read also. So, such a great, I forgot the author of that book. I, I also too read it, but I haven't picked it up in a while. So this is all, all great stuff. I really, really appreciate you, Lee. I'm really going to miss not being at TD conferences with you, but I know that I'll be seeing you throughout the industry. And I, I look forward to just, I, I look forward to seeing this, this next decade from you. I would say that I hope that women listening have as much courage as as you do. It's been awesome to just watch this evolve and then you get to this place. I give you a lot of credit for the work that you had to put in to get here. And congratulations to you. When we see each other, we're going to give each other big hugs this year. That's right. And high no fives. Problem. That's right. Real hugs. <laughs> Real hugs and high fives. So thank you, Lee, so much. Good luck to you. You're listening to In The Suite, a podcast that shares amazing stories of women in business in the financial services and the wealth management industry. Our producers are Tina Powell and Kevin Hirshhorn. Our editor-at-large is Kevin Hirshhorn. Our content writers are Dimple Roshandani, Sarah Smirker, and Tina Powell. Our research and technical assistant is Sarah Smirker. In The Suite podcast is sponsored by C-Suite Social Media, a high-performance marketing firm for RAAs and fintech companies in the wealth management industry. You can visit csuitesocialmedia.com to learn more. And thank you so much for listening and subscribing. We've got listeners in 825 cities and 44 countries at the time of this broadcast. We are so, so grateful to you, especially for your five-star reviews. This podcast was inspired by you and created for you ladies. So please let us know how you enjoyed this episode with Lee DiLorenzo and share your thoughts on LinkedIn and Twitter and Instagram, hashtag in the suite. You can connect with Lee on LinkedIn and visit unitedasset.com to learn more. And always, if you would like to share the name of a rock star woman in financial services we should interview for season three, 2022, please send it to me at tina at inthesweetpodcast.com. Again, thank you so much for listening and subscribing to In The Suite.